So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, man fans. This is the Monthly Magazine show, The Modern Man. I am its host, Ollie Man, And here is what we have coming up for you today. I felt sick and overwhelmed and delighted and a million things all at once reading that sentence. From handwritten letters to DNA testing, one listener's quest to find her biological parents. Plus... So once you're done with doing them, you can just compost them. Alex Fox on sex toy recycling and Ollie Peart is a dark tourist. It's all to come in this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters, uh, or as is the case this month, your doctoral theses. Because Manfan Caitlin in Sydney, uh, no doubt soon to be Dr. Manfan Caitlin of the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney, has sent me a pre-publication sneak preview of her doctoral thesis, A Glass Half Empty Assessing the Impact of Empty Flowers on Foraging Behaviour in 3B Species. I know! Summer holiday reading sorted. (laughs) Caitlin has done this for two reasons. Uh, One is you might recall that she got in touch last year regarding bee ejaculate. Uh, She had some points of order after Ollie Peart went beekeeping on the show. Um, And so this is an update on her progress. And the the other reason, which is terribly exciting, is she has given me, Ollie Mann, a shout-out in her thesis. Um, Sadly, a species of bee has not yet been named after me, but I will be following your career with interest, Caitlin. But I am mentioned in the acknowledgements section. Fortunately, this fell on page 10 of 280, so I did make it there. Page 1 was just an illustration. Uh, She says, in the acknowledgements... Before she thanks her parents, everybody. Quote, I definitely couldn't have completed my thesis without a few people I have never met. The voices of Keith Urban, Ollie Mann, and then a couple of other people. So I have been put into a list of Keith Urban. That's my takeaway from this. That's never happened before, to my knowledge. Um, And thanked for being in someone's ears whilst they do something as awesome as research into bee foraging. (laughs) That is just so much better than an Apple podcast review. I'm sorry, but it is. Although, you know, if if you're not doing a thesis about bee foraging right now and you can't thank me in your PhD acknowledgements, that's okay. An Apple podcast review will suffice. It does help other people find the show. Um, If you're interested, by the way, in how we make this podcast, some people aren't interested. They don't want to know how the sausage is made. (laughs) But if you are interested... Um, then we did a webinar, isn't that a terrible word, uh, for our hosting platform, Audi. Well, I did anyway, and producer Matt and Alex Fox, Ollie was actually in the Falklands at the time, uh, which was modestly entitled How to Have a Hit Podcast. So it's all three of us in discussion talking about 
um, how we came up with the format, how we built our audience, how we clear our music, all that kind of stuff. So if you are genuinely interested in in podcasting, perhaps want to start a podcast of your own, it's a decent way to spend an hour. It's free. You can fast forward the boring bits. Um, it's on YouTube now, so I've linked to it on our website, modernmanwithtwoends.co.uk. Um, and thanks very much to everyone who came along and watched it live on the evening as well last month. Uh, right, just before we get going, huge thanks to our sponsors this month, beer52.com. They are my go-to alcohol soundtrack for summer barbecues. I doubt they pair well with researching bee ejaculate under lab conditions, but if you're just looking for some superb booze this season, they are on point. The biggest beer club in the world, each month sending their members a case of beer from a different part of the world, and they're offering you a free case just for listening to this show. Head over to beer52.com slash modern, cover the meagre postage cost of $5.95, and they will throw in two extra beers for free. They're good like that. That is ten unique craft beers now i like the stouts that taste of ice cream but a lot of my trousers don't fit if dark beer is not your thing then you can choose the light only case you also get a copy of ferment magazine and a couple of tasty snacks and if you're not satisfied for some weird reason you can simply pause or cancel anytime that is beer52.com modern to claim your free case of beer now beer52.com forward slash modern and thanks again to them. Right, on today's show, you will learn how the messaging function on MySpace was very useful, actually, for one of our listeners. You will learn how many visitors Auschwitz gets in a typical year, and you'll learn about the Mermaid Parade. Magazine show, everybody. Magazine show. Let's go. Time for the Zeitgeist, your trends tested with Manscaped. And Ollie Peart is here. Hello, Ollie. Hey, Ollie. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I mean, we say here. Of course, we're not in the same room, but you are in the same country as me because you are back from the Falklands. I'm a bit disorientated. I'm still sort of, I'm getting myself rebalanced to being in the Northern Hemisphere. So Ollie went to the Falklands for us in part to explore the trend for war tourism because it's the 40th anniversary of the Falklands conflict this year. And I was curious whether others would be following in your path. What's the realities of getting to the Falklands from the UK, Ollie Pitt? Yeah, I mean, it's hard work, Ollie. Yeah. So the way that it works is the flight between the UK and the Falkland Islands is operated by the military, right? So they have a big plane. It's like a normal, normal plane. You know, you get on it. It's got air stewardesses and all that kind of stuff. But there's only 30 seats for uh, civilians and the other 100 and so are for military contractors and military personnel. So people take it a bit more seriously when they say don't smoke on board. Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's 100 guys with guns back there. <laughs> no, exactly that. And it, and it also means that you fly out and into military bases. So you have to, you know, like if you're going on a normal flight, you turn up at the airport like three hours before. We had to be there like five hours before the flight went. Really? Yeah. Oh, I guess they're worried about terrorism, are they? I, 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 I have no idea. I think it's because they need to get all the military guys kind of sorted out and they just kind of want all the civilians there just so it's not delayed. So you turn up and you just go at the gate of Bryce Norton and there's this crappy little portal cabin with a seat in it and an old jigsaw puzzle with about 15 pieces missing. What? No duty free? No sushi bar? There is there is duty free weirdly but it's all like it, it's operated by the NAFI which is like a right, yeah. military sort of well, I don't know tuck shop basically so you can get like your fags and your whiskey and that kind of stuff but you're not allowed to drink on the flight it's a dry flight so you can't drink you can't even take your own drink so that bit was a bit rubbish and then when you land in the military base in the Falklands as well 18 hours later it's a freezing cold warehouse about the size of my shed 
But this is adventure tourism, though, Ollie. You're not going to the Falklands <laughs> for nice lighting and trolleys, are you? No, You're that's going true. to have an experience. Actually, what it really felt like is that you took off from the UK, flew around for 18 hours, and then landed back in the UK because military bases are the same anywhere in the world. Yes. They're all kind of basically the same. So actually, you didn't really feel like you travelled all that far. But then when we got there, it was um, it had been snowing, and the road between the military base and Stanley, which is the main city in the Falklands, yes. It's pretty treacherous at the best of times. I mean, it is really bad. And that night when we were driving back, uh, we were in the back of this <laughs> rubbish little minivan sliding about. I think something like eight or nine cars came off the road. Who else amongst the civilians on the flight were there for tourism? None whatsoever. You know, like that. It's a flight that is uh, predominantly for Falkland Islanders. You know, it's called an air bridge. The whole point of it is that it connects the Falkland Islands with the UK. It is their only international flight at the moment. So they don't have any other way of getting in and out. So hold on. If you're a Falkland Islander then, mm. who has a sister in Sydney, yep. you have to fly via Bryce Norton. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's your only way. Wow. That, 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 that is changing. I think like next month you can get a flight to Chile. But it's interesting that it doesn't go in the other direction, isn't it? I, I, I mean, obviously, the Falklanders want the opportunity to leave and arrive at their own island. But it's interesting there aren't British tourists going because war tourism is a trend, isn't it? I mean, well, that's what we've tasked you in, with investigating. Is it a trend? Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, and again, like the caveat here, I'm just really boring, but it's you know, pre-COVID. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Auschwitz, for example, 2.3 million people visit Auschwitz on a typical year. And I think the difference between... Auschwitz and the Falklands is, as I've sort of pointed out, the Falklands is just really difficult and expensive to get to. It's like two and a half thousand pounds for a flight, for a return flight to get to the Falkland Islands. That's not the same the other way, by the way. If you're a resident of the Falklands, it's much, much cheaper. So that's the reason people don't go there. You know, you can find yourself on a, on a you know, on a tour of Europe. And this is one of the things about uh, war tourism or dark tourism, as actually it's it more appropriately called, which covers all kinds of stuff like, you know, war, but also natural disasters and that kind of th- thing. So sort of places that are associated with those is that tourists don't necessarily travel there explicitly to see those places Mm. but they'll have it as part of an additional itinerary so they'll go to sort of those parts of europe and be like do you know what i'm gonna go and look at this and sort of have that that experience i've been in that situation where i haven't intended to do some dark tourism but i have found myself doing it because you're in a place where you know that that's the most significant thing that's happened there is this thing so like for example I went to the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee, um, because I was interested in that subject. I didn't realise that the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee is so located because that's where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. It's not like I went to go and see the spot where Martin Luther King was killed, but that is where it is. So, I mean, sometimes you can almost sort of stumble into it by accident, can't you, just by going to the thing that is the biggest, you know, tourist spot in the place you happen to be. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people that do travel don't necessarily, you know, think that that's that that's going to form part of their itinerary or even consider themselves to be a dark tourist either. But they'll end up falling into their itinerary just because they're in that place. Like in Amsterdam, they might go to Anne Frank's house because, mm. you know, it's something that people do. You know, that, again, gets millions of visitors each year. But you're going somewhere that was the scene and the site of a real horrible, horrific experience, human experience. That mm. happened to me. The same happened to me when I went to Cambodia. You know, I went to Cambodia. You got to... shot in an attic? <laughs> Surely not. Uh, no, no. Uh, I was locked in a, in, a, in a toilet on a bus. Is that the same? <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite the same, is it? 
No, but when I was in Cambodia, it was, uh, you know, we went there for, a, you know, a nice holiday and a, a, and to travel. But while we were there, we heard about the Killing Fields, which is a place of mass genocide where hundreds of thousands of people were killed. And we thought at the time, well, maybe it's important that we should go and see this. And I've had to sort of like reflect back on this and just sort of think about what our motivations were. And for me, it was to learn, actually. I was intrigued about why and how somebody could do this to another person. I was not prepared for what I was shown and what was described to me. You know, I knew people had been killed here, but I thought I was just going to kind of walk around and kind of, I don't know, a little bit like walking around a graveyard in a church. Just see Yeah, like a war memorial. I mean, that's what a war memorial memorial. is, isn't it? It's not always in the place where it happened. It's just a a bit of stone with some names on you. Like, oh, that's a shame. Let's get an ice cream. Exactly. It's different, isn't it, going to the place? Yeah, it's really different. And and there, it's it's really visceral. But also, it's that thing I found as well of we sort of want to believe that places where terrible things happen continue to have a bad vibe. And yet, you know, the truth is, if people don't remember it across hundreds of years later, people forget. And then you don't know. You're in a place and you don't pick up a vibe. You don't know what happened there. You don't know how many people died. Mm. I mean, there must be examples of that with indigenous peoples all across America and Australia, right? Where, you know, white people walking around have no idea what they're looking at. And I kind of think, like, sometimes it's the mundanity of the place. Until you're told what happened there, it doesn't have any sense or resonance in a way. That was more prominent in the Falklands, actually, because the, the landscape of the Falklands is it's not dissimilar to the to the Lake District. It's not as high, but it's like, you know, it's this sort of beautiful sweeping moors, essentially, is what it looks like with some rocky terrain and stuff. And um, we got taken on a on a war tour with a chap called Tony who, you know, lived through the war. He was in the Falklands during the war and he kind of uh took to doing these these war tours but he also does nature tours i established quite quickly that not nobody in the falklands has one job they've got multiple jobs they do multiple things if your only clients are coming in on a weekly flight from bryce norton (laughs) you've got to diversify haven't you well everyone's done the war tour once (laughs) well they did they did they did used to have again they used to have these um uh cruise ships come in uh, from america Mm. uh, relatively often so they used to get a lot of people coming in that way and there'd be some interest there from people but a lot a lot of people myself included just you don't know what you're looking at and you don't really know the significance of it but it takes someone like tony to talk you through it and say right this is a really massive crater this is how many people died here this is what happened whilst you're looking at that landscape and you start to paint a picture and get a much clearer understanding of quite how horrific and horrible it was and i think you know we we all know about the Falklands but actually trying to fully understand and appreciate what the population went through is really really difficult and I don't think you can do that unless you actually go there and see it and hear it firsthand from someone that's kind of experienced that. Well also I think for people of our generation so both of us were born in the 1980s i.e at the same time or just after the Falklands conflict so when we heard about it I feel, I don't want to speak for an entire generation of people, but I feel like I was just like, because it didn't come loaded. It didn't come with the whole business of like, the Argentinians are starting a war with us. We need to protect our sovereign territory. The people of the Falklands self-identify as British. I didn't know any of that. The first time I heard about it, I was like, what? Britain went to war for that island, but it's obviously near Argentina. Why are we fighting for that? You know what I mean? Like, So my instinct was not exactly um, taking up sides with the Argentinians, but I had to justify to myself why Britain went to that war by researching into it. It wasn't my instinctive feeling. But I guess it's very, very different when you're in that place and you're meeting the people that were affected by it. There's a hall in a place called Goose Green, which is where 
uh, civilians were basically locked in there for, for, I think it was 30 days or something. You know, it was horrible in there, really disgusting with families and stuff like that. And then you start talking to some of the locals, even the younger locals, and they'll be like, yeah, my grand was in that hall or my mum was in that hall. And they still have that connection with it. And actually, it's recent history you know it's only 40 years ago and for the people of the Falkland Islands their relationship now with Argentina is still really awful and as far as they're concerned that war has not ended it has not finished so you're seeing these places and you're going to visit and you're asking these questions and these people are talking to you about it and you're reminded that actually this hasn't gone away and 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 it's the same for all, a lot of other dark tourism sites. So sort of the ethics of going to visit too soon can be problematic. Yeah. Um, the killing fields, actually, a, a lot of people do question whether or not the way that you visit it, the way that you kind of are taken around it, is that right? Because a lot of Cambodians, because it's still relatively recent and fresh in their memory, still have a really strong connection with that. History is written by the victors. So, you know, that's always going to be the case, isn't it? Whoever's showing you around the land are the people that are on the land now. But there is, I mean, there, there are people that do go purely for some slightly grotesque reasons. After Hurricane Katrina, there was an influx of people that headed to New Orleans to just go and basically snap photos of the destruction because they were sort of intrigued by it. Yeah, I suppose the difference there as well, you think about places like Ireland or Israel, is that there are countries where there are either contemporaneous or recent conflicts going on, but the people that are going there as tourists probably have some link anyway. You know, so you'll get British and European Jews going to Israel. You'll get uh, American Irish immigrants going to Ireland to see where their ancestors are from. So in a way, if they're told a slightly biased version of what they're looking at, they can either put it in context or they're going to be feeling some sympathy with that view anyway. But going to a place to which you have no connection immediately after a thing has just happened, I guess it can just seem ghoulish. And the vast majority of people that do go to the Falklands are people that do have a connection with it. So there'll be ex-military servicemen, for example, that will go to Tony and they will say, look, I remember this specific place. And and it might just be the shape of a rock, which they remember. And Tony will go and take them to go and see it. And it will be the site of where maybe they killed an Argentinian or they were shot at or very nearly lost their life. And it's for them to help them kind of process that experience and what that was like. So I can I can understand people doing that and, and even families that are connected with it to try and get a better understanding of exactly what happened. But yeah, you're right. I think if you don't have that connection, it can seem ghoulish. And that's where the sort of the time sensitivity thing comes in, like Pompeii. I think going to visit Pompeii right. and kind of look at it is probably all right, yeah? Yeah, but it's the same thing of like imagining yourself as a civilian, That's Mm. the thing, isn't it? Like, I think of the Falklands and I think of the Brits who went to the Falklands were mostly serving in the army and had chosen to do so. For the people that are there, like you say, my nan got locked in this cellar for 30 days. It's a completely different experience, isn't it? And what, what you're doing by walking around is you're identifying with the civilian experience of having this thing thrust upon you. And I guess that is what you're doing in Pompeii. It is just, um, yeah, tragedy plus time. That was something that was just felt very different uh, when I was in Cambodia, because you, you, the minute I went back to our tuk tuk to the driver that dropped us off, I had a completely different feeling about him, and I think I actually apologised to him. I think I said, "I'm really sorry." You know, I'm re- I'm really sorry that you went through that. So, in conclusion, then, Ollie, uh, do you think this trend for dark tourism can be a good thing? Well, I actually asked that question to Tony, who took us around the sites in the Falklands, and I said. You know, I asked him if he thought it was appropriate that we were visiting these sites and if it was okay, And his answer was absolutely, because we have to learn from 
the past. You know, we have to learn from those experiences so that we don't go through them again, which is a optimistic view because I feel like we're kind of going through it all again now at the moment yeah um, so many things yeah and that particular experience isn't going to actually affect you is it you don't live on an island next to Argentina but this is the thing you know maybe if more people did see these places after those experiences then we wouldn't be going through them as much as we are again and I think it is important I think it's really important that we do see these places but just in a respectful way Okay, I'm glad I don't have to segue immediately into pubic trimmers because first we're going to find out what your trend is for next month. (laughs) Would you like to know? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's something very different. Uh, It's from Paul in Folkestone who says... Hi, Paul. I've never had so many weddings to attend as I have this year. (sighs) That's the COVID backlog, Ollie. Are you not a fan of weddings? Of course you're not. You've postponed your own by about 10 years. <laughs> I am a fan. I'm a fan of other people's weddings. It's kind of fine. I just I do feel sorry for him because when you get when you get them back to back, it's a bit like, oh, come on. Yeah, you're wrong. I love weddings. But anyway, he says that means sitting through a lot of speeches and a lot of them aren't very good. And that made me think, could I challenge Ollie to create the ultimate best man speech? Well, yeah, of course he can. And I'm glad he has. I know exactly what he's talking about, by the way, sitting through shitty speeches i mean what do people get wrong in your view right (laughs) they're too long for a start like the liberty is important oh my god just no one cares shut up we just want the free food and drink yeah okay say your bit and then sod off we're not interested yeah congratulations no no there's a template ollie this is what i want you to explore and whilst you're there on that internet why not get yourself an excellent pubic trimmer from the good people at manscaped.com sponsors of the zeitgeist yeah you could grab their grooming package the performance package 4.0 ollie great for trimming your bush is bush because there's this whole campaign with manscaped at the moment which has got bush do, you, bush, do yeah. you think of a male pub- pubic region as a bush? That seems to me like a like slang for a female pubic, which, of course, women can use Manscaped products too, and they're excellent on all pubic hair. But do you, yeah, do you ever refer to your bush as bush? No, I don't. And it's a great observation because, actually, I think males generally don't have a word for their pubic hair right. bits. Just pubes, yes. actually. It's just pubes, which is gross. You yeah. know, I quite like bush or muff or anything like yeah. that. It's quite nice, but... <laughs> pubes just i don't know it's quite disgusting well i suppose why have a word for something that no longer exists because after you've used the uh, lawnmower (laughs) 4.0 it's all gone there is no trace of it left if you should choose to be as smooth as a baby yeah and the second best tool in the performance package is the weed whacker this is a nose and ear hair trimmer, which is oh, I use that. absolutely brilliant. I have to be quite careful because I have a moustache. And if my nose yeah. hairs get too long, yeah. then they get entangled with my tash. Yeah, so I yeah have to you make can sure separate, can't you? Church yeah. and state. Absolutely. Yeah. You can also buy yourself some Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Spray on Testy Toner from Manscaped.com. And you can get 20% off plus free shipping when you use our code MAN. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com and use our code M-A-N-N. It's time you level up from the Amazon to the Amadong with the ultimate bushwhacking tools from Manscaped. <laughs> see you next month, Ollie. Yeah, see you next month. Bye. In a moment, you'll meet our guest, Vicky, but first it's time for our record of the month. It's by Max Pope. It is, as you can hear, rather summery, laid-back vibes, hollybops. It's called Better Late Than Never. Enjoy. I feel the weight of the world descend A heavy load to bear and I can hardly breathe 
We here at The Modern Man love nothing more than being your platform to tell your stories, things that have happened in your life that merit being told to a wider audience. Other podcasts do celebrities. Other podcasts interview everybody who's got a book out. What we are genuinely most interested in is when we can bring you a story you don't hear anywhere else. Our contact details, if you'd like to share your story on the show, or if indeed you're about to give a best man speech and you're willing for Ollie Peart to co-write it with you, <laughs> are on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, then click the feedback form. We don't always have time to respond to every email, as I've said before, but we do read all your letters. And some of my favourite episodes have come about just by us following up on your contributions. And this month... It's the turn of man-fan Vicky Sanderton, who now lives in Australia but grew up in the UK with adoptive parents. I started by asking her what she thought her experiences might tell us about adoption and what she thought might be missing from the general conversation about adoption. I think it's pitched a lot of the time as this sort of fairy tale where absolutely well-meaning adoptive parents who just want to love a child, kind of swoop in and, and rescue a child that needs rescuing. Um, but I think it's important to understand, you know, and I, I see that this from all the Facebook support groups I'm in, that um, it can often lead to quite a complicated adulthood, um, even when it's gone well. So, you know, in terms of identity issues and knowing your background and knowing where you, you come from. Um, this is why it's quite frustrating to keep hearing, you know, people defending the overturning of Roe versus Wade, where they think that adoption is just an easy solution. And I would say there's an awful lot more to it than people think. There's a term that they use, which is coming out of the fog. As an adoptee, you grow up feeling that you should feel lucky and grateful all the time because people took you in that didn't have to take you in and on the flip side of that you're made to feel incredibly special it was like you know we so wanted a baby and we couldn't have one of our own so we chose you um and that to be honest fucks you up <laughs> You start to feel like you were the answer to this huge problem and you are therefore responsible for people's happiness. But also you were a huge problem for somebody else. Yeah, yes, exactly. So it can lead to a very, very confusing sense of who you are and what is expected of you. Vicky spent her childhood in Gillingham, in Kent. Her mother, Sheila, her father, Chris. So Chris was a long-distance truck driver, so he actually wasn't around a lot. It was mostly me and Mum. So we were very, very close. I remember that Mum 
would always really look forward to my school holidays. She genuinely loved the two of us being able to spend a lot of time together. And she worked in a school canteen, so we had the same holidays, which was really convenient. Uh, so yeah, it was, I had a lot of happy times with me and my mum, not so many with um, Chris around. And she, they actually went on to separate when I was eight. Was that difficult for you? No, I was really relieved. I picked up on the tensions between the two of them very vividly and I remember the day that mum um, sat me down and said your dad's gonna move out and my eight-year-old brain went oh thank god for that thank god for that it's easier when he's not here yeah I mean as a dad that's not the thing you want to hear is it what do you think he thought of his relationship with you I think um with you know, hindsight and maturity, I think he didn't want to be a parent. I think that having a baby was really important to my mum and they tried and, you know, um, medical things meant that they couldn't conceive naturally. And I don't know if it's different now, but back then the adoption process was quite full on. You know, it, it, it took them years to adopt me and... There was a lot of, you know, social workers coming to the house for spot checks to make sure it was an okay place to bring up a baby. And um, it was quite invasive. It probably still is now. But I get the sense that that process kind of killed their relationship. All through her childhood, Vicky was told she was adopted. But then, around the age of eight or nine, Sheila gave Vicky a letter. She said that the social worker who dealt with my adoption had written this letter and had given it to her and said, you know, obviously it's up to you if you want to pass this on to Vicky at any stage. Mum had given it a lot of thought and she said, I think you're grown up enough to have this letter and I want you to know all there is to know about your, your first mum, basically. It was a letter that had been typed on a typewriter because, you know, this was the days before people had computers. So it was kind of um, this higgledy-piggledy letter on like stained paper. <laughs> so I felt a great sense of pride that I was grown up enough to, you know, read this grown up letter written by a grown up about other grown ups. What did it say? Um, so it contained a lot of information about my biological mother and you know her her history her family it told me her full name it told me her date of birth and that she was born close to dublin in ireland that she had grown up in a sort of catholic family and that her parents had been publicans so they they'd run a pub and just just that vicky just just that so far what you know already is a lot yeah, it's a lot to, for, for an eight-year-old, it's a lot to think about. Yeah, yeah, I guess it was. I found it very exciting. Um, yeah, I sort of didn't realise at the time that I basically had enough information from that letter to to find her. What else did it tell you? It told me what she was like. So the, the social worker had sort of... Um, commented on her personality and said she was very warm and it used the word curious as well she's very curious um, and kind I think 
So that was nice to read. What was her name? Jacinta. For some reason, I had it in my young mind that she was in London. I, I think it's because I knew I'd been born in London, so it also told me that, um, that I was born in Lewisham Hospital, which is something I, I knew because Mum had told me that. Um, but in my mind, she'd given birth to me there and had never left London. So, um, so often it, when I went on school trips to London, I would be glued to the window of the coach looking for a stranger in the crowd who looked like me because I thought I might just spot her one day. See, that sounds like a child who is looking for something. And you were saying that you were happy and you were unaffected by it. But kids who are completely satisfied with their adoptive family don't look out the window looking for strangers to see if it's their mum. I think what I wanted was to see someone I looked like. You grow up and you you see your friends looking like their parents and it's commented on quite a lot with other children. And well, even for me, it was commented on um, quite a lot, which was bizarre because strangers would say, oh, aren't you like your mum? And that was a weird thing to handle because it's like, well, no, I mean, we've both got brown hair, but no. And looking back, I don't know if that was, it's just what people say, even if it's not true or, so it was quite a big thing when I was growing up. I noticed it. I guess I was around 14 or 15 when I really started to think about the future and if it was important to me to meet Jacinta. And around this time as well, I cut off contact with my adoptive dad because he was just behaving appallingly and I wanted nothing to do with him. So I guess that might have led me to sort of think a bit more deeply about parents and what they mean and what I expected from them. By that stage, my mum had remarried um, my wonderful, wonderful stepdad, who we call Daddy John. And I think he was there as a shining example of what a dad should be. And yeah, that also really helped. So I guess I had a few mirrors to look into about what a parent should be. So this is 2006, when the internet's kind of a big deal. Right before this point, you had a typed out letter. But now you've got the temptation, presumably, to Google Jacinta. Yes. So it started back at uni when I had access to a computer all of a sudden and Friends Reunited was a thing and I did find her on Friends Reunited but there wasn't a picture of her I don't even remember if we had profile pictures on Friends Reunited um, we, we've done a deep dive on Friends Reunited you had to pay five pounds to have your photo so right. that's what she hadn't done <laughs> She hadn't sent the cheque in the post to one of our former guests. <laughs> there we go. That was a great episode. Um, 
Yes, okay, so neither of us had shelled out a fiver. So she had no profile picture and her her bio was very, very brief. But you knew she was alive. I mean, I guess that's still a baseline, isn't it? Yes. Seeing her name on screen and knowing that she had typed out that name and that was yeah. her was um, was weird, really weird. And um, I don't want to say exciting because at the time it felt more like reassurance than excitement because I had no intention of this being the start of a search for her. So it was just, oh yeah, she's there she is. I decided that I definitely wanted to find her one day, purely out of curiosity, um, really kind of narcissistic curiosity, because I wanted to understand why I am the way I am. And I thought that finding where I'd come from might offer some answers. But I'd also made a promise to myself that I would do it when I was at a stage in my life where I felt settled because I was very conscious that if I'd you know if I'd started a search for her and it had taken months or years and then found her and she'd rejected me and said I don't want anything to do with you that it could have torn me to pieces (laughs) you know mentally and emotionally so yeah I always thought let's wait till things are kind of settled and I could take the rejection if that were to be the outcome. Still to come, what happened when Vicky was ready to make contact with her birth mother? That's when the modern man returns, after this. Man fans, summer is here, it's official. And whatever you've got planned, whether it's on the beach, a city break, work or play, Stitch Fix is here to make sure that your wardrobe is perfect for all occasions. They send someone, an actual human, out to shop for you. Someone who knows your size, what you do and don't like to wear, and how much you like to spend on each item. Stitch Fix, quite simply, take the pain out of shopping for clothes. The outfits then arrive at your door a few days later. You get to try everything on at home, decide what to keep, and then send anything else back. It's so easy. You pay just £10 each time you order, which is credited towards the items you keep, and you'll get 20% off when you keep all five items. There's no subscription required, plus shipping, returns, and exchanges are easy and free. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash man to set up your profile, and then they'll deliver clothes chosen just for you in your taste, size and budget. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash man, M-A-N-N, for 20% off when you keep all five items in your fix. Man fans, let's talk about skin. You probably already moisturise. It's the 21st century, after all. But do you scrub? Do you exfoliate? Do you cleanse, hydrate and protect? Have you ever thought about actually doing something about those circles under your eyes? If you're the kind of guy who wants to look your best, but perhaps would feel embarrassed talking about this stuff in a department store, or you don't have the time to start searching for products online, well, Tej Hanley make it easy. They'll send you a selection of their excellent lotions and potions that really do feel great on your face. Trust me, I've tried it. And because Tej Hanley is sponsoring today's episode, they're offering you... 
great deal. Just go to teach.com slash man and you'll get 30% off your first box plus a free gift. That's T-I-E-G-E dot com slash M-A-N-N. That's an amazing deal. Back to Vicky's story now. And we join her in the noughties. She's now graduated from university. She's got herself a job at Hasbro. And in the evenings, she keeps finding herself searching for her birth mother, Jacinta, online. I would have a glass of wine, um, open up my laptop and Google her. And I never found anything. Um, Nothing? There were there were references to um, her being a big part of the Buddhist community in the UK. <laughs> That's and what you expect from a Catholic Irish publican, is it? Exactly. <laughs> so on one of these random, oh, you know, I, let's just, let's Google her um, occasions. I did look up um, resources for adoptees and... I found a a kind of online message board where people who had been adopted could just leave a message for someone they were trying to reach out to. And I thought, sod it, why not? I'm here. So I wrote a message on this board saying, I'd love to get in contact with Jacinta, who was born on this date in Ireland. I believe she, you know, she's my my biological mother and you know Jacinta if you're reading this I don't want anything from you I I'm just curious and I would like to um I would like to get to know you and I left it at that I got an email a few days later from it was one of the moderators of the message board who um very kindly had searched through some birth, deaths and marriage records for me, which is something that, again, because I sort of accidentally started my search without giving it too much thought, that hadn't even occurred to me. The nugget of information that their search gave me that was completely new to me was that I had a sister, Siobhan. Whoa. Yeah, so I knew I had a younger sister for the first time ever. And I, I presume then there's a father's name as well, although I presume also that you're presuming that's not your father because it was so many years later. Exactly, yes. There's still a lot to think about. Yes, there's a lot to think about, yeah. I think my main concern was whether or not this sister of mine, who I assumed was a half-sister, although obviously could have been a full biological sister because I knew nothing about my my dad, my biological dad. I just wondered whether she knew that I existed. That was a biggie for me. Yeah, because on some level, your mum was probably always thinking you might get in touch. Her other daughter might not know you exist at all. Yeah. It took me a while to stalk her. It sounds like I was very lazy with this whole process. I was very casual about the whole thing. No, um, it doesn't sound like that. <laughs> it, it sounds like you're not quite sure what to do and you know that there are unanswered questions and you don't want to hurt yourself. Yeah. 
Yes, that's true. And I, I, I think one of my biggest concerns had always been, well, obviously Jacinta knows that I exist. Um, but what if she has this family around her who have no idea that I exist and I didn't want to go in there all guns blazing, introducing myself and tear a family apart, essentially, if they didn't know that I existed. So... I thought to myself, she's 17, she's in the UK. I knew that she was um, born in Reading in the UK, so I assumed that's where she would still be or somewhere around there. Um, so I searched for her on MySpace and found someone I was pretty confident was her immediately. So, so then you're looking at an image. Then I could see a face for the first time, which was odd so I started and this is going to sound really creepy but on her myspace she had a live journal wow this is a real history of uh, blogging and <laughs> social media from a long time ago live journal kids <laughs> we're gonna get into geo cities next <laughs> yeah exactly so it's a di- it was a, cl- a very pure blog right like a, a chronological diary yes exactly like an online diary. And that was pinned right there and you could go straight into her head. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I I wasn't a connection of hers on MySpace. I was just, I could have been anyone in the world reading her diary, yes. I got into the habit of reading it every day for about two weeks and um, mostly it was quite kind of surface level stuff and here's what's going on at school. I'm going to stay at my dad's this weekend. So I got from that that, you know, her parents weren't together anymore. I think I continued to read it because I wanted a clue that it was definitely her. You know, she, she was definitely my sister. Yeah. And I got that. (laughs) One day I got home from work. It was a Friday afternoon. Sat down at my laptop. Opened up the, uh, the live journal. It was the start of school holidays for her. So she wrote a bit about school holidays. Here are my plans. And then... I can remember the exact wording. She went on to write, and in other news, those of you who know me well know that I have an older sister who was given up for adoption as a baby. Wow. And I nearly threw up. (laughs) It was the ultimate head fuck. Yes. I burst into tears. (laughs) What did you think it meant? I knew I wasn't a secret. The fact that she used the word sister meant a lot because, you know, I wasn't just that baby that her mum had given up for adoption. I was her sister. I felt sick and overwhelmed and delighted and a million, a million things all at once reading that sentence. And I suppose in a way it kind of validated this approach of constantly checking in because again it seems strange it's such a recent history but people forget now in this age of push notifications 
you did have to go home, open your laptop, log onto the website, click the link, refresh. It was active all the time. Like you weren't waiting for this information to come to you. You were seeking it out and it could have been it could have been the opposite of this feeling, couldn't it? You could have found something that really made you think, Oh God, why did I ever start looking into this? Yeah. And you know, it's not something I could do on my phone on the train to work back then. And yeah. I I think even my space was blocked at work. So it was a very deliberate, you know, I'm going to go home and look at my space today. Seeing that she knew who I was or knew that I existed meant everything. She went on to write that her mum had received an email from, I think as she phrased it, some dude from the BBC (laughs) who was making a documentary about reuniting adoptees with their biological parents. And what essentially had happened is that this producer had found the message board that I'd um, left a message on and reached out to Jacinta to say, your daughter's looking for you. I can help with the reunion if you'd like to be a part of our documentary. She'd written in that day's journal entry, I've always known I had a sister who was adopted as a baby. We are so excited that she is trying to find us. I've been waiting for this day my whole life. So this isn't just a post that you've stumbled upon, is it? No. This is a post that's sort of designed for you to read. Yeah. Had you told your mum that you were about to reach out? She didn't know any of this was happening. Not because I was deliberately keeping it from her, but because, you know, I didn't want to involve her until until I knew I was absolutely going to reach out. You know, I I really wanted to make sure that she felt comfortable um, and it wasn't going to jeopardise our relationship. So, you know, I, I, I said, I'm not doing this because I'm looking for my, you know, quote, real mum. You're my real mum. You're the person that has raised me. I'm just really curious. And I, you know, I feel like I've been a jigsaw puzzle with one piece missing and I just want to put that piece in in place. And she was very honest with me. She said that she felt pretty weird about the whole thing, but she totally understood and would do exactly the same in my position. So I had her blessing to reach out, which was important to me. So I actually reached out from her house that very afternoon. How? Via MySpace, I found Siobhan's profile and opened up the little message function and said, hi, Siobhan, this might sound weird, but I think I'm your sister. (laughs) Such an inappropriate forum for such a heavy conversation, isn't it? I know. (laughs) I suppose at least it wasn't Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. Yeah, um, I said, I think I'm your sister. I read your journal and what you wrote tallies up with what's been happening with me recently. Um, I would love to be in touch with you and your mum. I was very 
um, conscious of establishing the boundaries that, you know, I wasn't thinking of Jacinta as our mum, very much Siobhan's mum. And yeah, I hope to hear back from you. Send. She literally replied minutes after I'd sent the message to the effect of, you know, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, you know, I'm so excited. I can't believe this is happening. Thank you for reaching out. I've let my mum know. How how do you want to be in touch? Do you want to email? What do you want to do? I said it would be really nice to initially email Jacinta. I really, really didn't want a phone call. And looking back, it's it was weird reasoning, but I had this thing where I didn't want to hear her voice until she was standing in front of me in person. And I don't know why that was. One thing I do remember from her initial email was she asked if I'd had a happy childhood. And I said, yes, you know, I felt very loved. And she replied saying that that had been the most important thing to her. So she was very, very happy to hear that. I mean, they're such small words, aren't they? But they mean a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Have you had a happy childhood? I mean, I can just imagine that that's what she'd been thinking about for yeah. 26 years, really. Yeah. And possibly would never know the answer to. That's what's been playing on her mind, right? Yes. Yeah. We decided that um, because I was living in um, Acton at the time, North Acton, and she was living in Reading, it turned out that Richmond was a, a good place for us to both get to on the train. So um, what we hadn't factored in, naively, was that meeting on the steps at Richmond Station is all well and good, unless it's a rugby day. I was swamped by excited rugby fans heading to the pub. <laughs> okay, so you weren't trying to pick through the crowd. You weren't like, which of these is my mother? I was just trying not to get knocked off my feet at that stage. Two minutes before I knew her train was arriving, a guy I worked with came out of the train station and it was someone that I worked with, kind of, but didn't know oh, well enough no. to, oh, to God, say. Oh God, have a chit chat. <laughs> and I actually just thought, you know, I can't be making small talk with Erin when I meet my birth mother for the first time. So I basically said to him, this is going to be really rude. You have to go. I can't talk to you now. I'll explain at work on Monday. And he was like, oh, oh, are you okay? I was like, I'm fine, but you have to go. So we saw each other. She walked towards me. Um, we had a very, very tight and long hug. She cried a lot. I didn't cry. I couldn't speak. I was just gobsmacked. Even now it feels very emotional to talk about. Um, it was like looking in a mirror for the first time. I said, should we just walk? Should we walk and find somewhere? And she said, yes. And we sort of like walked through Richmond kind of clutching each other and shaking. 
we approached this Italian restaurant and I said, do you, do, you, do you like Italian? And she went, yes. And I said, shall we go in here? And she said, yes. So we sat opposite each other at this, you know, small Italian restaurant and we were there for eight hours. The staff got to know our story quite quickly. They bought us a plant each to commemorate the day. And it took us a very, very long time to order any food because obviously we we had a lot to talk about. At one point I said to her, look, should we just get some food ordered because we'd already like we you know we'd started drinking wine turns out we both absolute fiends for red wine so um i was like let's just get some food this was about an hour after arriving at the restaurant and we looked at our menus and i said i don't know why i'm even looking i always get the same thing at an italian restaurant and she said so do i and pretty much in unison you know disney film style we said spaghetti marinara. It was like, it was like finding out why I am the way I am. Like it, I as a person came together in my own head that day. It illuminated things that were missing that you couldn't even vocalize before. Yes seeing someone who not only looked like me but who I shared mannerisms with and a view of the world with. I don't know much because I've not been in this position obviously about what's advised for people that have been adopted meeting their birth parents for the first time but I know it's not this. I know that you're not supposed to meet for eight hours and get pissed. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the reason for that is for some people it would just be too overwhelming, wouldn't it? And they'd start looking for connections that weren't there even maybe because they're so overwhelmed by meeting someone who looks like them. Was there a part of you that was a little bit worried that you've just plunged straight into this? I'd had a great day and, I mean, the adrenaline was just pumping the whole time I was with her. But I've got to say the following day I felt kind of afraid and yeah, there was definitely a nervousness that like with what happens now, you know, how how do we, what will we be to each other going forward? Are we friends? Is she my mother? Like what, what are we? So yeah, it was, it was exciting and terrifying. It was the second time I met Jacinta that Siobhan was there and the three of us went for dinner. Spaghetti marinara? No, we went for Asian that time. (laughs) And meeting Siobhan was um, strange because of that imbalance where she'd always known that I existed. Again, she grew up knowing that there was this big sister out there somewhere. And in her mind, I think that what she'd hoped was weirdly the thing that I had been fearing she wouldn't want, which was me to just slot into life as this big sister. Turns out that's what she wanted from me. And 
I just didn't feel that because we didn't have that shared history. But she sort of felt that we did because she knew about me the whole time. And what about the relationship between Sheila and Jacinta? So they met in person as part of the flurry of everybody meeting everyone in person. I was quite keen for them to meet fairly quickly because mum felt a little bit understandably sort of jealous um, when... I started spending time with Jacinta and, you know, it was a very exciting time for me and it must have been a really weird time for her. So, yeah, I think it was about three or four months into mine and Jacinta's relationship that I got the two mums together for the first time. Um, And that was a really lovely moment. Um, Basically, they just, there was a very big hug and they both thanked each other which was very sweet to watch. Mum thanked Jacinta for having me and Jacinta thanked Mum for raising me. So that was that was nice and good, you know, ego boost as well. <laughs> Do you have any more intel about who your father was? Yes. Jacinta has been very open with me about that. So we know that his name was Joe. This was on a a US army base in Germany, did you say? Yeah, in 1981. She found out that he was married and basically, you know, said, I don't want anything to do with a married man. And he said to her that the marriage wasn't working because he really wanted to have children and his wife didn't. And he thought it was going to be the end of them, which is ironic given he now has a almost 40-year-old child he doesn't know exists. Yeah. But I have started searching for him. So it's sort of doing it all again. A little bit, but this time trying to find someone who doesn't know that I exist. Do you know the surname of the man she thinks is your father? No, just know that his first name is Joe and he's American. (laughs) Is there a piece of the jigsaw missing again? The stakes don't feel... As high, And to be honest with you, it had really never occurred to me to find him until quite recently. So I, I had a um, I had a series of very helpful therapy sessions a few months ago and it came up during one of those sessions where the therapist said, have you ever thought about finding your father? And I said, no, I haven't. I feel like I got everything I needed from finding Jacinta but that kind of set off a thought process of well I mean it would be quite nice to know to have the full picture and at around the same time I know I'm in quite a lot of um, groups for adoptees on um, Facebook they're talking about you know at home DNA testing through like 23andMe and Ancestry yes because that is the thing that's wow you know we really are telling the story of the internet aren't we we really are yes that is the thing that's come along so it was Friends Reunited MySpace and LiveJournal but it is now 23andMe so you can spit into a bottle and theoretically find out who your father is that way yeah yeah so I thought well do you know what it would be fun to see the genetic breakdown of, you know, how Irish I am and how whatever I am. So let's just do it. And if a father appears in the process, then bonus, I guess. 
I did 23andMe and I've had my results. Um, he's not in that database, that DNA database. Um, what did spring up from those results that I sort of didn't really prepare for was that, you know, it, it breaks down that, oh, this person's on your biological father's side and you're, um, you share 2.4% DNA, for example. So with those results came names of people that my biological father is related to no one closer to me than say a third cousin so we're not talking you know siblings or anything yeah but someone who would be able to say yeah this was joe and he was in germany in 1980 whatever yeah just seeing those names yeah. has opened up a whole other part of my thinking around this where it's like oh you know just like when i got that email from that moderator saying Jacinta had another baby and her name is Siobhan. Mm. It's kind of like it's putting people, like other people in the story. And therefore, now I sort of do want to know more about my father. I mean, for all you know, he's still in the same marriage he was then. Yeah. Or he's dead. You know, that's another thing that I need to prepare for. So... What kind of age is he? Is he Jacinta's age or is he older? We... She thinks he's around the same age as her, yeah. So he'd be um, around 60, mid-60s. And that is where Vicky's story ends, for the moment. She might find out who her father is, that's partly up to her, and partly, perhaps, up to you. If you think you can help Vicky find Joe, do drop us a line via the feedback form, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Still to come, your sex questions answered with Alex Fox. After this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time for the foxhole, your sex questions answered with Alex Fox in person. Hello, Alex. Salubrious and lubricated greetings to you, Ollie Man. Uh, uh, what have you been up to? I recently went to the Coney Island Mermaid Parade. So people dress up as pirates and seahorses and starfish. And it's like it's a big celebration of not only Coley Island, but um, people's self-expression and the community there. I mean, mermaids then. So I imagine a lot of drag queens. That's what I'm guessing. There's a whole lot of drag on that drag. But also it does get perhaps unsurprisingly, a little political. This year, there were lots of Roe v. Wade rowing boats, for example. I was also kind of surprised to see this massive float that proclaimed justice for foreskins. They actually, I think they phrased it, forefins, uh, in line with the sea life theme. I mean, I've actually brought along... Please tell me you haven't brought a bag of foreskins with you. (laughs) No. They were handing out these Phineas and Aquata protect foreskins it says on this leaflet you've passed me and then they've they've sort of i imagine these are the people who run the float are they and they've they've done themselves up as like uh comic book heroes it's a foreskin restoration 
concept? They are activists, um, a, a movement known as Intaction, which is a, a play on action and being intact, i.e. not having a bit of your wang cut off. Uh, and they they stand for what they believe to be the four powers of foreskin, uh, which are providing pleasure, protection, lubrication, and connection between lovers. I'm a little bit more dubious about that one, because I think you still can you absolutely have the capacity to have connected emotional sex as somebody without a foreskin they also have a competition where you can vote for your favorite celebrity with foreskin how do you find out what celebrities have foreskins and anyway who's in the top five well they list leonardo dicaprio right. i do not know now how they found out about his yeah. foreskin status well to be orlando fair there have been plenty Bloom. of witnesses over the years <laughs> Yeah, Orlando, Orlando Bloom, Bloom mm. who quite famously did naked paddleboarding he did, and he yes. practically used his foreskin as a sail. Yes. So I think we can uh, we can safely say that he's got one. And also AC Slater from Saved by the Bell. Right. Obscurely, he has apparently saved his bell end. I suppose that's not an award you can campaign for, isn't it? You're either eligible or you're not. Um, it's time for our question of sex brought to you this month by ExpressVPN. They provide software that encrypts your data to keep your private searches very much like your private parts, i.e. private. And it comes from Catherine, who says, My husband and I recently updated our toy collection. Um, we're talking sex toys, obviously. And I noticed my favourite rabbit has finally wriggled its ears for the last time. I'd like to ask Alex, therefore, about disposing of or recycling old sex toys once they've given up the ghost. How do I avoid the embarrassment of taking it to somewhere that's not appropriate? <laughs> I love the idea <laughs> of turning up to Potter's Bar Recycling Centre. <laughs> saying, which bin does this go in, mate? Or just um, anywhere. Harvester <laughs> on yeah, a Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and is there such a thing as recycling them? Short answer is yes, you can, in theory, recycle your rabbit after it's had it. Um, but like so many things, it's not as straightforward as it perhaps should be. Because what, what it should be, and I would hope it was, is that I guess you have a similar situation to sort of plastic bags at the supermarket. You know, regardless what supermarket you got it from, you can leave them here. You'd think a company like Ann Summers uh, or Love Honey would say, just give us your old sex toys when we're buying a new one. Well, they used to, actually. Love Honey had this, uh, what they, I think they called it the rabbit amnesty scheme, where you could get, <laughs> you could send them your old sex toys and they would recycle them uh, for you, but also give you points towards a new toy. They now say that they will take back a toy on a like-for-like -like basis if you buy a new one. So it's all a little bit more regimented. They don't offer you points anymore. In fact, a lot of toy stores globally who used to advocate for recycling and were, were quite um, loud in proclaiming mm. that you could send all your old dildos and dongs their way and they'd make sure that after they'd finished rocking your world they didn't hurt the earth a lot of them have kind of like quietly gone defunct or at least been scaled back and um, there was one i could find in uh, australia that will only take toys weighing 300 grams or less so uh, if your big donkey dick is ready to go to the glue factory then you're fucked unfortunately but also what do you do we? i mean i imagine it's quite hard even for a company of the scale of love honey to work out how to recycle you know 
10,000 old rabbits. The problems that companies are facing are similar to the problems that your average consumer is going to be facing. The first thing is that you need to know what your toy is made out of. Um, if it's something like a real low-grade jelly-style plastic, then unfortunately there is no hope for it in terms of environmental goodness. As an aside, I found some very funny blogs where people had these toys that couldn't be recycled and were desperately trying to dispose of them in, in discreet ways. There was one guy who was hacking his mega dildo up into like salami-esque <laughs> slices and sneaking them into the waste paper basket so that he wouldn't get he wouldn't get nobbled for having his giant knob. Yeah, because it's often a purchase that people are not particularly proud of, isn't it? They will have destroyed the packaging, they'd have gone back and thrown away the receipts. They may not even know what this thing is anymore. If your sex toy is made of something like uh, pure silicone or ABS plastics or wood or metal or, or glass, in theory, those things should be, you should be able to recycle them. Um, but just taking your fully formed Roger Rabbit down to the tip, yeah, there is, unfortunately, there's an element of shame and stigma there. Officially, in the UK, uh, anything that has a charger, a plug, or take ba takes batteries, you should be able to recycle that. So if you hop over to your local council website or look on recyclenow.com, they'll tell you where you can take that. I would really like to hear from anybody who works in the recycling industry uh, about how many do actually get dismantled and all their component parts recycled because it's an very labour-intensive process. I've also heard from people in the US saying that when they've tried to recycle toys, they've been told that places just won't accept them because they're a biohazard. So yes, you should be able to recycle these. They depend on you having access to a robust system that does actually do what it promises. So an alternative, rather than take them to the tip, is to see if somebody else would like to use them. I was really hoping you weren't going to say that. Well, I just think, I mean, it just doesn't seem like a product where you should be saying, it's the Airbnb of, <laughs> you know, which is what people <laughs> do in Silicon Valley. Is there a need for a second-hand sex toy apart from amongst fetishists? I can't help wondering. There is take the fetishists out of it, Alex. Be honest. There's a massive subreddit r forward slash used sex toys where yes, there's a contingent of people who are turned on by yes. the fact that somebody else has used the I toy. Said, put those to one side. <laughs> who is left? There are a lot of people who. I'd want... rather crowdfund for that person who desperately needs a vibrator. Do they, you know what I mean? They want a bargain. They're after a bargain, and provided your toy is still working and it's non-porous so it can be cleaned thoroughly you might be able to get get a few bob for something once you've finished doing your thing on your knob where though because i imagine that's against the ebay terms and conditions isn't it and facebook as well doesn't like anything sexually explicit where do you list it people do still try and sneak listings onto both of those platforms usually using uh, descriptions yes. that uh, that neatly get around all the the uh, the words that are going to sound alarm bells. Um, this is a subreddit, so if you're there, you want to look. Mm. You're in the market for buying a used sex toy. So you can post it there, can you? Post a picture there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And put yeah. your PayPal details. Yeah. And, and s sell on I think they're all fetishists, Alex. I just, <laughs> I just don't believe it. Well, alongside the fetishists, there are also the artists. There are those who are collecting old, defunct dildos etc uh, to turn them into um, pieces of 
conversational uh, artistry. I can just, again, I can imagine having to have that conversation. Yeah, it's just a really powerful statement about feminism and sexuality. Like all dildos stacked up in a pile. (laughs) You just stand there stroking your beard. Mm, Yes. You are bang on. Um, There's a woman called Jen Stein who uh, you can see her stuff on Instagram at Adult Arts and Crafts 2 who basically just turns old dicks into into, um, miniature scenes to do with uh, political activism. Um, on a more light-hearted note, um, there was the, there's somebody who collects um, old uh, dicks to turn them into like massive thrones, like a Game of Thrones. Oh game wow! Of bones it's like something playing. Neil Buchanan used to do on Art Attack. If you are concerned about these issues with toy recycling, what you can do is make wiser, more ecologically sound choices about the toys you buy going forward. We've chatted about this a little bit in the past. There were things like the Earth Angel, which was a wind-up vibrator, a little bit like one of those wind-up torches, and stuff like the California Exotics Bullet that was solar-powered. And both of these things were innovative, but they didn't really look very sexy, and they didn't always have enough oomph to get people off. So it might not work in a long, cold winter. (laughs) I think they did work, just not really with enough power and enough passion Mm. to please a lot of people's palates. The design of eco-sex toys since then has come on a huge leap and bound. They're now a lot more sleek and slick. They're a lot more attractive. Uh, They're more high performance. And there's a lot more to choose from. There's stuff like the Gaia Eco and the Fuck Green range, both of which are made from forms of plastic that are actually starch-based. They're made out of uh, cornstarch or sugarcane leftovers. So once you're done with doing them, you can just compost them <laughs> along with your like your tea bags and your potato peelings and whatnot. They'll they'll rot down, uh, or at least their their casings will. Um, Womanizer, who we've spoken about before, mm. who make their their clit sucking toys, they now do an eco version that's also made of one of these biodegradable plastics. Um, there's a new company. I've actually brought some of their oh lovely bobs with me oh good well these don't look like organic materials and i mean that i mean that positively because i was thinking it's all very well saying you want something environmentally friendly but you're putting it in a very sensitive place and sometimes the idea of something that's you know completely um natural might not be as appealing as something that's very smooth and plasticky the metal parts are actually made from recycled aluminium cans so they were once a can of coke and now they're something to give you clang or a poke um, the boxes that they come in are all made from brown card, so it's easy to recycle. The ink is made from soy, so it's low impact on the environment. Even the glue on uh, that's used in this packaging and in these toys uh, is is ecologically A-OK. So I'm holding a peripheral, basically. So you screw it onto a base, do you? Yeah, these are from a company called Love Not War. They're designed so that you buy one rechargeable base and then you can screw different tops into it. So so they take fewer materials. It's a bit like an Oral-B electric toothbrush, if you're trying to imagine. So you get the the base that sits in the charger and then you can change the tops. Yeah, and even if you don't choose an eco-toy as such, selecting something that's well-made that's a design that you have confidence is going to to bring you pleasure and suit your needs. So doing a little bit of homework and really thinking about what you're investing in rather than making an impulse buy means you're less likely to want to chuck that after you've fucked it in the future. You might even want to consider getting something custom made. So it's the sort of thing you want to cling on to and be passionate with forever rather than chucking it in the trash after it's been inside your gash. 
Good. Although Fuck and Chuck, I think, is a good brand name for a disposable sex toy. Not that I'm saying <laughs> such a thing should be used. I'm thinking the 1980s Fujifilm entrepreneur style, you know, device. <laughs> Fuck and Chuck. Just use it once, throw it away. Anyway, uh, our thanks again to ExpressVPN for supporting the foxhole. Alex, it says here that I should ask you now about a time where you've had to search for something that you wouldn't want others knowing about. <laughs> I can't imagine what that is. Like, you tell us everything. I have used... VPNs or uh, virtual private networks for multiple uses. Um, For a start, they allow you to change your IP address. IP says essentially who you are and where you are digitally. When you're using a VPN, you can be wherever you want to be in the world, which is useful for me when I'm traveling. Uh, It allows me to watch TV shows in New York that I wouldn't usually have access to. Yeah, but also around global content restrictions around sex. And we've talked about this Uh before, haven't we? People getting chucked out of the UAE for bringing sex toys with them for example. That's the sort of country, if you're visiting, where a VPN is very useful. Yeah, absolutely. I also use VPNs when I'm in hotels or anywhere where there's a firewall that blocks access to adult material, um, because otherwise I can't do my job. So VPNs help me work as well as frankly, helping me wank. When you use ExpressVPN, it is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers. You don't even notice it's there. It runs seamlessly in the background. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. And Alex, how can listeners protect their online activity today and get a special deal? If you head to expressvpn.com slash man, you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash M-A-N-N to learn more Uh, and if you have a question of sex for Alex to answer on a future edition of the Foxhole what do you need to do with it? All you need to do is magic yourself over to modman.co.uk that's with two N's and hit feedback See you next month It's been a pleasure And with that we have very nearly reached the end of this episode of The Modern Man but there is just time to appoint a new Manbassador and it's Diane Parker from Poole Dorset mother to Manfan Dean Lacey who says Hi Ollie I'm a long time listener who's just got round to buying you a beer Cheers Dean Ever since I recommended the podcast to mum she loves to discuss each episode with me in great detail normally before I've even listened to it She laughs at the banter you and Ollie have and loves the sex hole by which she means foxhole All in all, it's a strange conversation over dinner with mum. I would love it if you could consider her an ambassador for pool. I would, Dean. I have. Congratulations, Diane. Uh, If you'd like to be an ambassador, buy us a beer, drop us a line, links on the website. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you with Stu and Tom and our annual How to Be a Dad special on August the 10th. There must be something. Hi. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.